But something that's been going on in my life the last few months is that I have been a basketball coach. I mean, I know when you look at me, first thing you think is basketball coach, right? I've been a basketball coach for two sets of age groups, the pre-K and kindergarten, which really is kind of like herding cats instead of teaching basketball. And then I've been coached for third and fourth grade boys, which is Eli's age group. So uh, nine and ten-year-old boys. And we are not the best team in the league, but we've been playing hard. They've been improving, and things are getting better. And we played our last game of the regular season yesterday. We still have a tournament coming up this week. But we were playing yesterday the top team in the league. They were undefeated. They had not even... Nobody come close to beating them, all right? In nine games, their average margin of victory was somewhere around 13 points. Like, they had outscored their opponents by almost 100 points in a nine-game season. Now, not like a single game, not like Kentucky and Tennessee yesterday. Like, over the whole... Y'all realize... Y'all didn't... Y'all watch the game yesterday? Can we get a praise be to God for Tennessee beating Vanderbilt and Kentucky in the same week in basketball? Move on, Linda, you want me to move on? Or you want me to dwell here for just a moment? All right, so anyways, we're playing the top team in the league yesterday, all right? And nobody got really close to them, and we're coaching. And, and to be honest, and, and I didn't admit this to my players, to my assistant coach, which is uh, the Honorable Kevin Steelman, uh, which, by the way, probably need to rethink putting the pastor and chairman of deacons as basketball coaches in a city league representing the entire church next time. But um, we... We, we kind of went into the game just thinking if, if we could just be respectable. Um, we, we have not outscored our opponents this year. We are, we're three and six going into yesterday. And so we just keep it respectable. And so we're coaching. And after the first quarter, we're tied. And at halftime, we're down by two. In our third quarter, which, you know, with substitution patterns, we knew that was the quarter we had to survive, we had to make it through. At the end of that quarter, we're down by six. And Susan said she could tell, in my mind, suddenly I'm thinking, we can win this. I mean, we got my, I've got my best five out there, we're getting ready to go. She said she could see a change in my demeanor, like, we've got a shot at this thing. And so, I get the guys, and we, you know, we're getting ready for the fourth quarter, and I get my best five out, and I get them surrounded, and I'm pretty hyped by this moment. I mean, I've gone from just, you know, guys, y'all just have a good time, I'm drawing up plays, you know, I'm thinking through things, I'm showing them how to screen, I'm uh, yelling at kids for shots they're taking, you know, I mean, it's that whole process. I've transformed. And so I get them all around and, and uh, I get them there together and I say, listen guys, it's the fourth quarter. We're within striking that is nobody has been this close to this team all year. The last time we played them, by the way, we, they almost doubled our score. All right. So you're thinking, nobody's been this close. We, we've got a shot here. So I look at them and say, guys, what I need from you right now is about half of what you got. If you could just give me a little bit right now. Right now what I need is mediocrity from you. You think that's what I said? No, what did I say? I said, I need everything you've got. I've got eight minutes here, eight minutes to try to win this game, and I need everything. I need you to be hustling. I need you going after balls. I don't want a ball on the ground you're not going after. I want you making smart decisions. I need your very best effort here in this last quarter. And we went out there, and we lost by three. So I got home last night, and I was thinking about it. I was thinking about the sermon I'm preaching today. 
And I thought about how I didn't have any problem calling those guys to give me everything they had to try to win a basketball game against other 9 and 10 year olds. And today I'm going to stand before you and tell you that we have an opportunity to be a part of the greatest movement that has ever existed in the history of the world. And yet churches all across the land will settle for mediocrity and half effort and a slice of people's time and a little bit of what they've got. When this is an endeavor that requires everything we have. This is the most important thing you will ever be a part of. The movement of God, of reconciling, bringing people back to Himself, is the most important thing you will ever be a part of. Some of you have important careers. Some of you have important social settings. Some of you are important in the lives of people, and all of us have circles of influence. But the truth is, the most important thing you will ever be a part of is this. And I don't necessarily mean this church, although I hope that's a part of what it means to be a part of the kingdom of God for you, but I mean of dealing with people's eternal history. We're talking about making eternal difference. Not momentary, not lifetime, not generational. We're talking about eternal And what is required in that kind of opportunity is everything you have. There's been a word that we've talked about over the last few weeks. And the point over the last few weeks is talking about the church. And what is it? And we talked about, you know, several weeks ago now that the church is a group of people called out of society for the purpose of telling other people about Jesus. And that the church is for anybody that is wanting to investigate that relationship, wanting to investigate who Jesus is, and that we need to tear down all barriers that we have existed or put up or have in our minds or in our churches or in our lives to people being able to get to Jesus and to hear about Him. And then we talked about what the church ought to be doing and that we ought to be worshiping the Lord, singing praises to His name, lifting high who He is. We ought to be growing deeper, but that growth means that we are obedient to who He is, what He wants us to do, what He's called us to do. And then last week we talked about that the main mission of this church is to reach out to people outside of it and to tell them about Jesus and to meet them where they are and let them know about Him. But in order to accomplish that, we need you and all of you. Not just numerically all of you, I mean all of you. And all you have. A few weeks ago, when we got ready to kick this series off, I preached a message, and today is going to sound very similar to it because I think that the point of doing all that we have done is to come to a place where then the Lord calls us to commitment. And in that message, we talked about a word that then we brought up again last week that finds its way throughout the New Testament and particularly in the book of Acts. Now, just to remind you, what we're doing here as a church at First Baptist Fiddlesville is that we exist to glorify God by leading people to become passionately devoted followers of Jesus Christ. 
And our goal is that we glorify God, we worship Him by helping other people understand what it means to follow Christ. And in the book of Acts, when this whole church concept got started, when this movement really began, you have this word that shows up over and over and over again. And it's a word that has been talked about as something that is lacking in the American church today. And it's the word boldness. In fact, I just want to walk you through some of the instances in the book of Acts where this word is used. And some of them are going to be on the screen. We're going to end at the last chapter of Acts. But in Acts chapter 2, verse 29, it says, Brothers, I can confidently, and just so you know, the word confidently there is the word that is translated boldly everywhere else. Speak to you about the patriarch David. He is dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Now, here's the thing. You read that and go, what does that have to do with anything? All right? So he's bold about the fact that David's dead. Here's the point. He's saying, I can confidently, boldly proclaim to you that David is dead. Does anybody know what he's going to talk about next? It's not going to be on the screen, but you can probably guess. David's dead. Jesus is not. He'll say, Jesus that you killed is not. And the word confidently links. Y'all remember sentence diagrams? How many of you remember sentence diagrams? They still do that in school? Y'all still diagram sentences? Y'all love it, don't you? How many of you have never diagrammed a sentence? You down here, let me see. We Our school systems are failing us now, right? How many of you remember sentence diagrams? Let me see your hands. All right. How many of you love them? Thank you, Ms. Richardson. I see that hand. Ms. Betty Carpenter does not surprise me in the least. All right. So, if you attach the word confidently there, you diagram it, it is both attached to the fact that David is dead and that Jesus is alive. And so that's the thing that gives them boldness. Now, here's what happens. It goes on. The next uh, chance it tells us is when they observe the boldness of Peter and John, and realized that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and recognized they'd been with Jesus. So they have this boldness about who Jesus is, and that is what is starting to let people say, wait a minute, there's something different about these guys. They haven't been to school. They don't know how to diagram sentences. They don't know how to do all that fancy stuff. But here they are speaking about Jesus, and it is clear that they are confident in what they're saying. Their boldness draws them to them. It goes on just a little bit later and says that... Paul, or excuse me, Peter is praying. And now, Lord, consider their threats. That's the people that were threatening to kill him. We talked about this several weeks ago. Grant your slaves, that's all of us that are his followers, may speak your message with complete boldness. While you stretch out your hand for healing, signs and wonders to be performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. He continues saying, When they had prayed, the place where they were assembled was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak God's message with boldness. It's just there all the time. And so most, or some of you probably know the story of Acts, that after that, Peter and James and John and the disciples, they start going all over the place and they start saying, hey, this is who Jesus is, this is what Jesus does. And the whole story takes kind of a turn in Acts chapter 9 where there's this guy who had really got together an inquisition against Christians by the name of Saul, looking out, trying to find Christians that he was going to uh, arrest them, kill them, let it be known that these, this message has to be stopped. 
On his way to do that, on his way to find some people, God stops him in his tracks. The bright light shines. He has a, a, a um, conversion experience where he suddenly begins to follow Jesus. And so he turns from Saul, the one who is trying to kill all the Christians, to Paul, who is now one of the leaders of the Christians. And Paul begins to travel around different churches. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago, and he's traveling around. He's telling about Jesus. These guys come behind him and say, listen, it's Jesus plus this, Jesus plus that. And Paul says, no, it's not. It's Jesus and Jesus alone. And Paul decides that his goal is then to take the message of Jesus everywhere he can imagine. In fact, some of you, there, I want to put a map up. I think I've got it in there. There's a map. If you don't remember this kind of scene, this kind of map, some of you, right? What is this map of? Paul's missionary journeys. And if you follow along, you've got Paul's first journey, Paul's second journey, Paul's third journey, Paul's journey to Rome. Here's what I get out of this map, all right? It's not important that you know every... There's no quiz next week, all right? Here's what I get out of this map. What I get out of this map is Paul went a lot of places, right? And where he went, he started these little groups of people who were called out of society for the purpose of telling other people about Jesus. We call that a... Church, right? A church plant. He had this plant of churches all over the place. He would get them up and running, get them going, and go, all right, now I'm gone, I'm leaving. And Paul began to do this. And the more he did this, the more success he had. And the more success he had, the more people got upset with him. And the more people got upset with him, the more Paul dealt with the fact that in the midst of that, he still had to be bold. In fact, there's one point when some guys talk to him and say, Paul, you don't need to go down there, because if you go down there, they're going to arrest you. And Paul says, listen. I am confident that if I go, they're going to arrest me and they'll probably kill me, and yet I'm still going to go. And so Paul does all these missionary journeys. And on one of these missionary journeys, he gets arrested. And as he's arrested and being tried literally for his life, he looks up at him and says, Oh, by the way, did I mention to you that I'm a Roman citizen? And if a Roman citizen declares that they can see the Caesar, then you have to take me to Rome. And so all the proceedings stop. Paul gets put on a ship to take to Rome. Here's the thing. They try to keep him from getting on the ship. He finally gets on the ship. He goes. The ship has shipwrecked. Things go crazy. He finally gets to Rome. And when he gets to Rome, there are no charges there. Nobody had sent why he was arrested. But the Romans know he's in trouble, so they stick him in a house that he rents. They chain him to a Roman guard, and they leave him there for two years. Now here's what I love, alright? You got your Bibles? Open to Acts 28. Pause there. In the midst of being in Rome. You see where Rome is, by the way? Far left, at the top of the boot, right? Paul's in Rome. And he's arrested and he's in a house, but he decides that that doesn't mean he can't be bold in his witness for the Lord. So you know what he does? He calls all the Jewish leaders of Rome and invites them to his house. Now who was it that arrested him in the first place? Jewish leaders. Paul thinks, I'm already arrested. What more are they going to do to me? Let him come. So he invites all the Jewish leaders to his house and it says that they get there and from dawn till dusk, he talks to them about Jesus. Now listen. I have preached some long sermons in my life. I got an amen out there somewhere. But I have yet to preach from dusk or from dawn till dusk. Amen? 
I didn't ask what it felt like. I'm saying what it actually was. I haven't preached from that. He spoke with them all day. And at the end of the day, it says he persuaded them over and over. At the end of the day, some of the Jews are persuaded and say, we think this is right. And some of the Jews are not, and they say, this is not right. And it says they're arguing about it in his midst. And Paul, being bold, gives them a quote out of Isaiah that says, you're going to go talk and their hearts are going to be hard and they're not going to hear and they're not going to listen and they're not going to do anything about it. And Paul says, guess what? That's you. God's going to take the message to the Gentiles. Don't worry about it. Then look at verse 30 if you have it open. This is the last two verses of the entire book of Acts. Then he stayed two whole years in his own rented house. And he welcomed all who visited him. This will be up on the screen. Proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching the things concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with full boldness and without hindrance. That word shows up at the beginning. It shows up at the middle. And it shows up at the end of this book. And the understanding is, if you're going to seize the opportunity that you have of being a part of the greatest movement that has ever existed, you've got to live with boldness. And you've got to take advantage of it. Over the last couple of weeks, I've been receiving lots of um, opportunities. It usually starts with a phone call that I don't recognize the number of. And I answer. And, and there's a sound as a ship taking off. And I have been awarded two free passes for a cruise. And the cruise destination changes every time they call. But if I put together all the cruises I've won in the last three months, I am cruising for the rest of my life. And I'm not talking about on a ship that's been, you know, fired up and there's no food or sanitation on it. I'm like, you know, luxurious. Now, first of all, is that a real opportunity? Why don't one of y'all find out for me, all right? It's not a real opportunity. But the second thing is, even if it was, it does me no good if I don't take advantage of it. We have been given this opportunity. But the Lord's not asking us to give half or a part or a portion. He wants it all. And there are churches all across this land that have decided that in order to not scare anybody away or not make it too difficult, that they don't talk about the Lord needing all of it. They just say, just come, just be, just sit. Just... And we've settled for mediocrity when it comes to being a part of the church. I'm going to ask you to do four things. It's almost identical to what I asked you the first week of this year. But in light of what we know about the church and what we've seen over the last few weeks, I'm going to ask you four things. And the first thing is, we need you to invite boldly people to come to this place. Now listen, I don't claim that we are the greatest church that has ever existed, or the only church that has ever existed, or the most important but I do believe that we are communicating the gospel of Jesus Christ in a relevant way and that people 
me. So I'm going to ask you to invite boldly. Find people to ask. You say, I don't have anybody I know that needs to go to church. Then go find somebody that does. Interact with people. Invite them in places that you don't normally invite them. Talk to friends, co-workers, and say, listen, just come with me one week. Come be a part. Some of you may be here today because someone invited you. The truth is, the statistics all say, if you invite and offer to go with people, most of them will say yes. So just do it. It's that simple. Invite boldly. Secondly, volunteer boldly. One of my favorite stories in a book I've read recently is um, a guy I've mentioned a couple times, Andy Stanley and his dad. And uh, Andy's dad's this longtime pastor. Been he's 80 years old. He's been preaching for for 50 of those in a large church in Atlanta. He's been there for decades. And Charles is one of those guys that's been on TV for years. One of the first television preachers. Andy was just the preacher's kid that got in trouble sometimes, and then. As life kind of went on, developed, started to be asked to do things. And he, he went to his dad one day, and I love this conversation. He said, Dad, he said, I really don't feel called to ministry. He said, I was wondering, can I just volunteer? And what he meant was, can I volunteer to ministry, like preaching and all of that? And his dad said, absolutely. Because the truth is, Scripture talks a lot more about people saying, here am I, send me, than it does about this roadside conversion experience. Now, you're saying, all right, preacher, you're not telling me to quit my job and go to ministry. No, unless that's what you need to do, all right? But we need your help. You need to be involved boldly in places of service. Maybe that means a place that you've never been a part of, but you've wondered about. Maybe that means being a part of a place that's new, or maybe it's to help with some ideas about something that, that has been around for a while. It's not too late to call and say, hey, pastor, I, you've been talking about Brazil. I, I need to go to Brazil. I, I know I, I know y'all may go in the future, but this is my year. I need to go. It may be that you call Jerry Garrett or Wallace Ralph or, or Melvin Best or the church office and say, listen, I'm, I, I know they do this stuff in Lynch, Kentucky, and I don't know how to help, but I want to help. I'm supposed to do something. I want to do that. Uh, maybe it's that you say, listen, Miss Geraldine Heflin, you've been working at that prison for years. You've been doing it all on your own with the help of some volunteers, coordinating it all. And we need some people that can say, hey, listen, I need to help out there. I want to work out there. We're making a big impact in the lives of some women that are have very little hope in the prison system. And we're making an impact there, and I want to help with that. Maybe it's, hey, I, I believe that... Um, we need to help mothers who find themselves with an unwanted pregnancy. And I don't know how to do that, but I know there are places that do. And I want to call Cumberland Crisis Pregnancy Center or the Hope Center and say, listen, I just want to volunteer. I want to help. I don't know how. I don't know what, but just do that. We need you to be fully involved. A few months ago, James and Ken Sutton, who had joined the church just recently, went to church here for a while and they came back and joined they bought Mason's Restaurant down the street. And most of you know, or some of you know, they've opened it back up as a hometown catering restaurant, hometown restaurant. James came to me and said, Lyle, we're down there, and the people that are living in Mason's Motel really need the Lord. And we just think that we need to start a ministry down there. And we've talked to Ben. What do you think about that? I said, I think it's a great idea. We now have a ministry down there on Wednesday nights. We have... Some, some people from Masons are coming here on Sunday morning, all because one guy and one wife said, we've got to do something. Volunteer 
boldly. Third thing, you need to give boldly. It's one of those that sometimes preachers kind of dance around because especially you think if this is your first time visitor or you've been here a couple of times, all they talk about is money. All they want is money. Well, we do talk about money because Jesus talked a lot about money, but we don't talk about it that much. But if you really want to see where people's hearts lies when it comes to the church, talk to them about their giving. How much did the first church give? How many people, what, people of the first church, how much did they give? 5%? 10%? Here's the scripture. Here's Acts chapter 2. See, I think I put it in between services. Now, all believers were together and held all things in common. Okay, it goes on to say. They sold their possessions. The understanding from the original is they sold it all. And property and distributed the proceeds to all as anyone had need. Alright? Every day. How many days? Every, right? So does that mean Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday? Is that what that means? Yeah, that's what every means, right? At least that's what I learned when I was in school. Every day. They devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple complex and broke bread from house to house. Then Acts 4, in case we think, well, we're just misinterpreting that. For there was not a needy person among them because all those who owned land or houses sold them. Brought the proceeds of the things that were sold, laid them at the disciples' feet and said, use this as you see fit. So how much did they give? I gave it all. So, I'm telling you today, the only way to be faithful is to empty your bank account and bring it here. Okay, maybe not. But here's the thing. People get squirmy when you start talking about 10%. And the truth is, some of you out there, you haven't been giving, you're not giving. And listen, first of all, if you're not a member of our church, you're not part of our family here, then you just don't worry about this in the least. Okay? But if you're part of our family, we need you to be faithful. And for some of you, you haven't been giving, you've been giving a little bit, and you think, there's no way I could start with you. Pastor, if you saw my finances, I can't give a third of a percent. First, I would say, oftentimes you can give more than you think, but the Lord knows your heart. Just say, I'm going to give this, 2%, 3%, 4%, off the top, every month, just start that way. And then pray, Lord, help me to increase that. You know one of the hardest words to deal with in our own lives is the word sacrifice. I wrote an article this week about the season of Lent. And I know we're in a Baptist church, and so you talk about Lent. That's kind of strange. Lent started last Wednesday, Ash Wednesday. And just in my personal life, it's something I've been kind of observing the last couple of years. Not in a Catholic way, just getting my heart and my life prepared for Easter. But one of the things that happens in Lent is I give up something during that time. And I, uh, for the last two years, I've given up different things. This year, just I've given up something, okay? And I'm not talking about major stuff here, but I mean just something. And I wrote in the article something that really hit home in the midst of that is, it's amazing to me how difficult even the smallest sacrifices are. 
Two years ago, I gave up caffeine. On the second day, I, I felt like I was in, like, detox. How many of you here like your caffeine? All right, call it in. That's all I... I mean, really, I was in my office. It was... Um, I started on a Wednesday. It was Thursday. I was in my office about 1 o'clock. It was after lunch. So I'd been off caffeine for about 36 hours. And I had a headache. I was sweating. It, it was, and I was like, this is ridiculous. And I remember thinking, you know, at one point I was like, oh, woe is me. I can't have any caffeine. And then I was reading a passage for study. And I thought about the sacrifice the Lord did for us. And I know that's, you know, one of those moments you couldn't guess where it's going. People get really nervous when we talk about sacrifice. But do you know what everyone in the first century church did to follow Jesus? They sacrificed. Jesus tells us, before you follow Him, you need to count the cost. We need you to give. Unapologetically, I'm telling you, That if you have a problem with giving your money to the church, the problem's probably not with the church. It's with your heart. Here's the last thing. Not only do we need you to volunteer and give and invite boldly, I need you most importantly to pray boldly. I need you to pray for what God is doing here and around the world. We can have the greatest programs and the greatest equipment and the greatest technology and the best worship band and the best preaching and the best Sunday school teaching and if we're doing it all in our own power, we will get the results of our own power. But if we want to be a part of the movement of God, it has to be connected to the Lord in prayer. And I don't know whatever else you have that you can give but I know that you can give the Lord your prayers. And I'm not talking about just kind of surface level stuff. I mean, it's important to pray for people's sickness and illness. We talked about this several weeks ago. It's important to pray for that. I'm talking about praying big prayers to a big God to do big things. God's not a genie up in the sky that we wish it and it's going to happen. But the Lord does hear the prayers of His people. And He hears our prayers asking Him to do big things in our church, in our families, in our schools, in our communities. And the Lord will respond when His people, who are called by His name, will humble themselves and pray. Church, I feel like that we're gathered around at this important basketball game. And I'm able to look each and every one of you in the eye. And what I want to say to you in that moment is not just remain comfortable or is everything okay. What I want to say is I need everything you got. I mean, we're here for a short time. This is the only opportunity we're going to get to do this. This is your chance to be a part of the greatest movement that has ever existed in the history of the world. And I need everything you've got till the end of your days. Now the truth is, sometimes coaches give that speech and guess what happens? The guys go out, give everything they got, they shock the world, they do something amazing. And sometimes you give that speech and they don't. Right? 
So here's the question. What are you going to do? The church is a movement of called out people for the purpose of sharing Jesus. That's our task. To glorify the Lord. To tell other people about it. To be obedient. Are you going to be bold in how you live for Him? Let's pray together.